Good morning, everyone. Welcome. Come on in. As usual, there are handouts in the back if you would like to follow along. Uh, filling in the blanks is not an inspired activity, but it might keep you a little engaged. And I also have some extra copies of filled-in handouts from the prior weeks up front if you'd like to grab those afterwards, so feel free to do that. We are in week number eight of our Attributes of God study. And today, we are going to move into two more glorious attributes of God, His goodness and His patience. So let's pray to begin our time. Father, we, uh, we just take this time to acknowledge you as perfect and complete in all ways, beyond our complete understanding, but by your grace through your word and in dwelling spirit, we're able to know you. Uh, we praise you for that and pray that our time this morning will help us to know you more and as a result become more like you. So we pray that you would bless our time in Christ's name. Amen. So up to this point... We have worked through a number of God's attributes, actually 12 of them. Can you recite them? I'll recite them for you. His aseity, immutability, omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence, sovereignty, holiness, justice, jealousy, wrath, wisdom, and truthfulness. And friends, we're just scratching the surface Given what we've learned about these attributes so far, uh, one might be tempted to conclude that God is stern and aloof, right? Uncaring toward his creation. But friends, nothing could be farther from the truth. Scripture teaches us that he's good, he's gracious, kind, and caring. He's merciful, gracious, and loving. In fact, He's the source of all good things, right? James 1.17, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. He also delights in bestowing good gifts upon his creation. So I've defined goodness here. Remember, these are not inspired definitions. But I've defined goodness here as God's perfect and unwavering moral excellence and benevolence toward his creation. His moral excellence and benevolence toward his creation. He always acts in accordance to what is right and true and good. There's some other attributes of God that are commonly described as effects or outworkings of his goodness each uh, depicted in a particular way. And I've included them with their definitions in your handout here. And we're going to work through some of these additional attributes over the next couple weeks. These definitions are based on Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. I've listed them here. One of them is his patience. We'll cover that in the second half today, which is I've defined along with Wayne's help here, uh, is God's goodness and withholding of punishment towards sinners over a period of time. Withholding punishment towards sinners over a period of time. 
And there are some other outworkings here of His goodness that we will cover in the coming weeks that I have listed here. His mercy, grace, and His love. Which, um, His mercy uh, is defined as His goodness towards those in misery and distress through His compassion and forgiveness. His compassion and His forgiveness. His grace is His goodness towards those who deserve only punishment through His unmerited favor and generosity. And His love is His goodness toward people unconditionally through His affection, care, and delight. His affection, care, and delight. We'll work through these over uh, a couple weeks here, but I want you to see that these attributes are outworkings of His goodness, which we'll focus on now. Charles Hodge described the relationship of God's goodness with these other attributes this way. Goodness, in the scriptural sense of the term, includes benevolence, love, mercy, and grace. By benevolence is meant the disposition to promote happiness. All sensitive creatures are its objects. Love includes complacency, desire, and delight, and has rational beings for its objects. Mercy is kindness exercised towards the miserable and includes pity, compassion, forbearance, and gentleness. Grace is love exercised towards the unworthy. All these elements of goodness exist in God without measure and without end. In Him they are infinite, eternal, and immutable. As I've studied these attributes over the last several weeks, I've discovered something that you probably already know. I've discovered that not all of these attributes fit within a well-defined box, neatly separated from one another. They're not. And when we look at the particular characteristics of his patience, which we will do, mercy and love and grace, we'll see some of these characteristics appear multiple times across those attributes. For example, when we think of God's forgiveness, That's clearly an element of his mercy, right? But it's also related to his patience, because patience is a form of mercy. And of course, he's motivated to forgive and show patience out of his love for his people. This overlap or repetition is not a bad thing. So it's okay for us to hear this multiple times. And it, you know, if, if, if it were so cut and dried, perhaps it would lead us to believe that maybe we know everything uh, about his attributes. And it never hurts to hear this same truth over and over again. So we'll start by looking at God's goodness, and then we will follow by investigating these other attributes. Throughout Scripture, God's goodness or its benevolence is clearly displayed. When Moses asked to see the glory of God in Exodus 33:19, remember what God said in response? I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. This indicates goodness is a core nature of his being. David exclaims God's goodness many times in the Psalms. Psalm 86:5, for you, Lord, are good. Psalm 23:6, surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. Psalm 31, 19, how great is your goodness. He's not only good, but his goodness is great. 
Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And you notice that all of those are in the present tense. There's no looking back on His goodness. His goodness is eternal. In Romans 2, 4 and eleven twenty two, Paul talks about the riches of God's kindness or to behold His kindness, which is related to His goodness. So God is wealthy in goodness. He delights in lavishing it on His creation. Wayne Grudem says, the goodness of God means that God is the final standard of good and that all that God is and does is worthy of approval. So some additional characteristics of God's goodness here. Number one, God is generous. He's generous. God's goodness is not rationed out in tiny doses, but instead he's generous to his creation. He has no ulterior motives for doing so. J.I. Packer said, Generosity means a disposition to give to others in a way which has no mercenary motive and is not limited by what the recipients deserve, but consistently goes beyond it. Generosity is the quality which determines how all God's other excellences are to be displayed. In Exodus 34, 6, remember when God passes by Moses in that cleft of the rock, you know, he says, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Abounding in loving kindness. It demonstrates his generosity. First, he's generous to his creation in animals. Right? Job 38, God tells Job how he cares for animals using rhetorical questions, verses 39 to 41. Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens and lie in wait in their lair? Who prepares for the ravens its nourishment when its young cry to God and wonder about with food? Psalm 104, 27, 28. They, the animals, all wait for you to give them their food in due season. You give to them, they gather it up. You open your hand, they are satisfied with good. Jesus affirms this. Matthew, tw- uh, Matthew 6, 26. Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. He's good to his creation. And secondly, he's generous to his people. For example, when Israel was in the wilderness, God provided for their needs in multiple ways, Right? Water, bread, even meat. And of course, he also gave them his law to guide them. Psalm 23, David describes how God provides for his people. Verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You've anointed my head with oil, my cup overflows. He describes God as preparing a banquet feast for those who are in his kingdom. And even in the midst of enemy opposition, he's being generous to the point of David's cup overflowing. He's exceeding David's needs. David also says in Psalm 145, 9, The Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all his works. So God is generous in his goodness. Number two, God is gracious. In his goodness, he is gracious. When we talk of God's grace, it has different dimensions. But 
essentially we can roll this up into two basic kinds of grace. His common grace and His special or saving grace. Next week we're going to cover His saving grace in more detail because that deserves uh, attention all by itself. When we talk about grace, that's what we will focus on. But here I'll briefly mention common grace as a component of His goodness to His creation. Common grace is God extending His goodness to all people, including unbelievers. God provides good gifts to unbelievers and believers alike. He allows them to enter into marriage and have children, gives them skills and abilities, allows them to have jobs, make valuable contributions. He allows them to enjoy His creation. He gives them breath to breathe. Right? He doesn't withhold His goodness from them. Jesus confirms this in Matthew 5.45. He says that God causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So God is gracious to all in this sense with His common grace. Number three, God is judicious. He is judicious. God uses judicious wisdom in providing for believers. He, he doesn't always endow believers with the same abundance, but he does so with perfect discretion. Psalm 34.10, They who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. They'll have their needs met by God according to what he sees best. Psalm 84.11 says, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. So God delights in supplying the needs of his people. Turn over to Matthew 7 with me. Matthew chapter 7. We're going to look at verses 8 through 11. Here, Jesus is telling his hearers about God's gracious provision. Matthew 7, verses 8 through 11. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask Him? And Paul, in Romans eight thirty-two says, He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? But we can trust Him to provide for our needs. Not only physical needs, but most importantly, spiritual needs. I found this poem from an unknown author that I, I think expresses this truth well. I asked for health that I might do greater things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked God for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might learn to obey. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power and the praise of men. I was given weakness to sense my need of God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life 
that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing I asked for, but everything I hoped for. In spite of myself, my prayers were answered. I am among all men most richly blessed. Yes, God always gives us what's best for us. Number four, God is guiding. God is guiding. And another important quality of God's goodness is the personal guidance that he gives to those who trust him. David expresses this multiple times in the Psalms. We keep going back to Psalm 23, a wonderful psalm. He says, he guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The psalm says that the good shepherd, he directs his people into green pastures and beside quiet waters. He never leads or guides his people into sin, but always toward righteousness and holiness. And if it's not in that direction, that is our problem. He guides in times of difficulty and opposition. Psalm 5.8, O Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. Make your way straight before me. This guidance is also ultimately for God's glory. Psalm 31.3, for your name's sake, you will lead me and guide me. Paul confirms believers who are led by him. Romans 8.14, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. So God is guiding in his goodness to his people. Number five, God is guarding. He's not only guiding, but he is guarding. In his goodness, he is protecting. We see this all the way back to the garden, Adam and Eve, when God placed them in paradise to enjoy his goodness. They had everything to enjoy except they were not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, Genesis 2.17. This prohibition, if you will, was an expression of God's goodness as it protected their minds from being polluted by evil. It was protective in nature. And this is true of every divine command that prohibits something. It's an expression of His goodness to protect us from harm. In the garden, when Satan tempted Adam and Eve, this implica- the implication was that, he, that God somehow was withholding His blessing from them, not being good to them. But of course, we know that was a lie. So his guarding and protecting is a form of goodness. Now, you may be asking, why does God seem to distribute his blessings and goodness unequally among people, leading to disparities in health and wealth and opportunities in the world? We know it's clear not everyone receives the same amount of earthly blessing. Some are wealthier than others. Some have better health than others. Some have more talent or wisdom than others. God, as the sovereign creator, distributes his blessings and gifts according to his divine purposes. Steve Lawson says, God dispenses gifts as his wisdom directs him. Not every person experiences the same measure of gifts, but God is still wholly good. And I misspelled gifts, I see. 
put a little, put, <laughs> put an F in there. <laughs> you, get, you get the point. Now, a few things to keep in mind here. And I have listed them briefly in the handouts. Earthly blessings are temporal. They're not eternal. They're fleeting. Right? They're not permanent. As we take an eternal perspective, we realize just how short this earthly life is compared to eternity that we'll spend with God. God is sovereign over all things. He has the freedom to distribute His blessings as He sees fit. He's not obligated to provide or sustain earthly blessings. And His purpose in distributing blessings go beyond our limited understanding. His purposes include His glory and His justice, His mercy, the advancement of His redemptive plan. We don't see or understand all of that. Another thing, there are consequences of the fall that we're living in. Sin has distorted the created order. It's affected every aspect of humanity, including health and wealth. We experience that. And lastly, sometimes our faith is being tested. Unequal distributions of blessings can also serve as a means of testing of one's faith. Scripture teaches us the importance of contentment and humility. Paul says in Philippians 4, 11 and 12, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. And then, as you probably know, the next verse, verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The strength that we receive from the Lord allows us to be content in whatever circumstances we're in. So, the experience of inequality, uh, it should deepen our dependence on God. Foster compassion for others. Develop character traits such as empathy and generosity and justice uh, in a way that pleases God. Now, a related question, why are unbelievers blessed sometimes more than unbelievers? As part of His goodness, God also causes even unbelievers to prosper in the way that they do. Sometimes, He's so good to unbelievers that it can cause believers to become envious or at least mystified by what they're seeing. Sometimes, out of His wisdom and His mysterious will, God bestows temporal blessings on unbelievers. Turn over to Psalm 73. Psalm 73, uh, Asaph describes his concern about the prosperity of the wicked. We just read this a few weeks ago um, in our psalm reading uh, during worship service. Psalm 73, verses 3 and 4. He says, For I was envious of the arrogant, as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. That's not uh, a criticism at that point, saying that their body is fat. He's noting here that unbelievers are eating better than the righteous. 
and that they're even content when they die. Verse 5, they are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. He's indicating that believers seem to suffer in life more than unbelievers. However, it's not until Asaph goes into the house of the Lord that his perspective is corrected. Jump down to verse 17. Verse 17. Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. So in the temple, hearing the word taught, he remembers the ultimate end of the wicked. Verse 18. Surely you set them in slippery places, you cast them down to destruction. The goodness of God bestowed on believers in this life is temporary. It's altogether different than His saving grace, which is eternal. Another perspective here is that God uses challenges and hardships to test and refine believers. In contrast, some unbelievers may not face the same testing or spiritual refinement because they haven't placed their faith in Christ. They're not under his protective chastening, his disciplining. You remember a couple weeks ago when we talked about his jealousy, God's jealous for his people by disciplining them and chastening them. That doesn't happen to unbelievers. So some Takeaways here from God's goodness. Number one, when your circumstances of the world around you tempt you to doubt God's goodness, remember His word that affirms His abundant goodness. You've heard the phrase, God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. Right? God has never promised this life will be smooth uh, without challenges. But even in those times, God is good. I've referenced this before, but it's worth repeating. Romans 8.28 speaks clearly of God's goodness. We know that God causes all things to work together for good of those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. In verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. So he's always working for the good of his children, which ultimately is to shape us into the image of Christ. Nahum 1.7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. He is our refuge. Trusting in this truth will lead to our greatest joy. Number two, Demonstrating the goodness of God to others is encouraging to believers. It's an effective witness to unbelievers. A body of believers should be reflecting the goodness of God, especially with each other. There's a long list of one another's we're to be exercising. You've seen those lists before. It's good to keep those in front of us. Love one another, serve one another, pray for one another, comfort one another. The list goes on. There's many of them. And when believers display God's goodness in their lives, it can be a compelling witness to unbelievers. Demonstrating love, kindness, generosity reflects God's character. It opens the door for conversations about the gospel. So in summary, God is eternally good within himself. 
He's good to his creation, and we are to show that goodness to others. So that's a brief observation of God's attribute of goodness. So let's move on to our next attribute of God's patience, which is an outworking of his goodness. I've defined patience here as God's goodness in withholding of punishment towards sinners over a period of time. Withholding punishment towards sinners over a period of time. In his unwavering endurance and merciful delay in judgment, he does this to allow ample time for repentance and reconciliation. MacArthur and Mayhew have a more descriptive definition I thought was helpful. God's patience speaks of his being perfectly placid in himself and towards sinners in spite of their continual disobedience and disregard for his warnings. This idea of being perfectly placid within himself or calm or peaceful within himself means that not only is God's patience directed toward his creation, he's first patient with himself. And this is something I had not really thought about until I studied this. His patience is not a grin and bear it kind of patience but he's perfectly peaceful within himself in his patience. So, I've had occasions where someone has thanked me for being patient, where I've had to wait for something longer than usual. But I know that there have been a number of times when that has happened, even though I may have outwardly looked to be patient, I certainly was not at peace within myself. I was exhibiting external patience with that person. I was grinning and bearing it. That is where we are not like our Heavenly Father. He does not grin and bear it. Octavius Winslow, a uh, 19th century British preacher who was a contemporary of Charles Spurgeon and J.C. Ryle, says this, "'God's patience is the power of God over himself.'" God's patience with man is only surpassed by his patience with himself. Except for the infinite restraint God puts on himself, this fallen world could not exist a moment. Mercy withholds judgment, goodness restrains justice, patience curbs power, and thus the patience of God is the salvation of man. That last phrase, the patience of God is the salvation of man, is a reference to 2 Peter 3.15, where Peter talks about the coming day of the Lord and his patience that results in the salvation of his people. Let's look at some characteristics of God's patience. Now, all of these characteristics here overlap to some degree. You're going to find that as we get further and further into this. But I still think there's some unique perspective on these that is worth noting. So, number one, God is long-suffering. He is long-suffering. Long-suffering is defined as having or showing patience in spite of troubles, especially those caused by other people. I think God is very long-suffering with us. God's patience is 
characterized by his long-suffering nature, despite humanity's continual disobedience and rebellion, God displays long-suffering in dealing with his creation. We all deserve to be wiped out instantly. We are experiencing his long-suffering patience. He endures with patience and restraint, giving people time and opportunity to repent and turn to him. 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowest, but is patient. King James Version says, long-suffering toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. English Puritan John Flavel says, long-suffering is an ability or power in God not only to delay the execution of his wrath for a time toward some, but to delay it in order to show grace in the salvation of of others. His patience is part of his sovereign plan. Also, he's not overwhelmed by man's rebellion, which is hard for us to identify with. Uh, The longer we need to be patient with anyone or anything, the harder it can be for us. I know it is for me, but not so with God. Number two, God is slow to anger. He's slow to anger Related to his long-suffering, God's patience is expressed in his slowness to become angry. Rather than swiftly executing judgment or punishment, he demonstrates patience by withholding his righteous wrath. He exercises great restraint, giving people ample time to be reconciled with him. Scripture describes God being slow to anger multiple times. We already referenced Exodus 34, 6, when God is passing by Moses in the cleft of the rock. He says, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger. Moses, in return, declares in Numbers 14, 18, the Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression. David says the same thing multiple times in the Psalms. For example, Psalm 86, 15, but you, O Lord are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. God doesn't lose his temper with his people, but instead he acts calmly according to his sovereign plan. Stephen Charnock writes about God's slowness to anger being an act of divine power. He said, God's slowness to anger is a greater argument of his power than the creating of a world or the power of dissolving it by a word. In this, he has a dominion over creatures. In the other, over himself. So he exhibits his power by being slow to anger. Number three, God is forbearing. He is forbearing. Now, these may not be words you typically use on a day-to-day basis, But I still think it's helpful here. The word forbear means to hold back or to control oneself when provoked or to refrain from the enforcement of something such as a debt that is due. It it carries this idea of restraint, tolerance, and self-control. Turn over to Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9. Now, to find Nehemiah, go to the Psalms, then go back three books. Job, Esther, then Nehemiah. 
That's your uh, Bible search tip for this morning. Now, this chapter is a prayer of confession to God for the sins of Israel. The leaders of the people said this prayer before God in their creation. Or the, uh, yeah, the congregation. So first, before we jump into, I'm going to look at uh, verses 28 through 30, but I, I, while I'm here, look at verse 3. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 3. While they stood in their place, they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a fourth of the day, and for another fourth they confessed and worshiped the Lord their God. A fourth of the day. Now here, a day is typically considered daylight hours, about 12 hours. So if you think of a fourth of a 12-hour day would be three hours. So this would mean they read from the book of the law for three hours, and then they worshiped for another three hours. So Marshall, we can't really give you a hard time (laughs) for preaching a little long, right? Now, this really doesn't have much to do with what I was talking about with God's patience, but perhaps maybe it's a reminder for us to have a little patience uh, with one another, right? So let's drop down to verses 28 and through 30 of Nehemiah chapter 9. But as soon as they had rest, they did evil again before you. Therefore, you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. When they cried again to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you rescued them according to your compassion and admonished them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted arrogantly and did not listen to your commandments, but sinned against your ordinances, by which if a man observes them, he shall live. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not listen. However, you bore with them for many years and admonished them by your spirit, through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hands of the peoples of the lands. So in his forbearance, God bore with the Israelites for many years. But during that time, he wasn't aloof or uninvolved. He admonished them through the prophets. And of course, we know the Israelites wavered in their obedience But God demonstrated his forbearance with them. If we look at the time from the Exodus until the time of the exiles, that was about 700 years. So in the exercise of his common grace, God displays patience in his forbearance with the world. Number four, God is steadfast. God's is steadfast. His patience is enduring and unwavering. Despite the repetitive nature of human sinfulness and failures, God's patience remains constant and steady. He persists in His love and His desire for a relationship with His creation, even in the face of continual disobedience. Psalm 100, verse 5, For the Lord is good, His steadfast love endures forever. His faithfulness to all generations. This in the ESV where it says steadfast love, uh, the, the New American Standard uses loving kindness. Uh, the King James uses mercy. You can see this overlap of the attributes of his goodness. 
The the Hebrew word for this is hesed, which is used over 200 times in the Old Testament. There's no simple English equivalent for this word, but it conveys a deep sense of God's loyal and constant love. It encompasses kindness, mercy, compassion, favor, commitment toward His people, which is rooted in His covenant relationship with them. It reflects His unwavering character, revealing a willingness to wait, to endure, to extend opportunities for repentance and reconciliation. And in accordance with His other attributes, His steadfast love never changes. Charles Spurgeon said, There is nothing little in God. His steadfast love is like Himself. It is infinite. You cannot measure it. His mercy is so great that it forgives great sins to great sinners, after great lengths of time, and then gives great favors and great privileges and raises us up to great enjoyments in the great heaven of the great God. I think that's a great quote. (laughs) So, in his patience, God is steadfast. So, you might be asking, if God is patient with our mistakes and shortcomings, does, does it mean that he's unconcerned about the pain and the struggles that we experience? God's patience is rooted in his desire for reconciliation and restoration rather than immediate judgment. But it doesn't mean that God is indifferent to our suffering. He's completely aware of human pain and suffering. Remember, he's omniscient. But more than that, he truly empathizes with us because he became man and fully experienced everything we have in the incarnation of Christ. He empathizes with our suffering, actively works towards our ultimate good, even in the midst of our difficulties. 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on Him. Because what? He cares for you. He cares for us. God's patience is often accompanied by His providence sustaining us through hardships and using them for our spiritual growth and ultimately for His glory. So some takeaways here on God's patience. Number one, God's patience is meant to lead sinners to repentance. His patience is linked with His mercy. His patience allows for extension of mercy, granting people the chance to experience His forgiveness and salvation in Christ. He's patient with unbelievers. If that describes you today, you are currently a beneficiary of his patience. But trust him today while there's still time. God's patience is not to be mistaken for a lack of accountability. Acts 17.30, Paul tells the Athenians, the time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. His patience is is meant to lead to repentance. John MacArthur says, I believe that the most universal gift, the most universal blessing that comes from God's common grace to humanity is time. Time to repent, time to believe, time granted by God's patience. Number two, if you're a believer, praise God for being patient with you. His patience with us should lead us to deep gratitude and humble worship. Psalm 63.3 
Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. We should praise him for his patience toward us while we were unbelievers. But also, as believers, he's still patient with us. Harry Reader says this, I think of all the questions that I ask the Lord, and then I think of my stubborn streak against him. I think of my inability or refusal to learn. I think of how many times God shows me the way of righteousness and how I turn away. I think of my faltering and failing steps and my outright rebellion against him, even as a believer. Oh, the patience of God and the riches of his forbearance and grace. It is for us as believers as well. Number three, never presume on God's patience. He's patient toward us as believers as he's developing us, refining us, and growing us. His patience with us is an opportunity to live for him in holiness, to serve him and to love others, not to squander it. Romans 2.4, Paul says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Just because God is patient doesn't mean that we should ignore it or take it for granted. Alistair Begg says, God's patience with us when we sin must not be mistaken for his permission for us to sin. Number four, lastly, be patient with others as God has been with you. Colossians 3.12, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Being obedient to commands like these should be fueled by a remembrance of what God has done for us. A.W. Pink said, when tempted to be disgusted at the dullness of another or to revenge one who has wronged you, remember God's infinite patience with you. Being patient and slow to anger is a mark of wisdom. Proverbs 14.29, He who is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who is quick-tempered exalts folly. It's a mark of wisdom, having patience. So in closing, we've first seen that God is good. He always does what is right. And the outcome of, of His plan is always good, even if we can't completely understand it. And the most supreme expression of God's goodness was in sending His Son, Jesus Christ, to be that perfect and blameless sacrifice so we can be forgiven of our sins. So out of His goodness, Christ took that punishment that we were due and exchanged it with His own righteousness that we can stand before Him as righteous in His sight. And out of His goodness... He also expresses his patience toward his creation, allowing for his people to repent and to be reconciled to him. Friends, we have a good and patient God. So next week, we will cover two more outworkings of his goodness, his mercy and his grace. Let's pray. Father, you are good. Good in your patience with us and good in the salvation you provided in Christ for those who have not trusted in you, Lord, I pray you would enable them to repent and believe in you while there's still time. And for believers, may we not presume on your patience, but live in holiness and obedience to you. Thank you, Father, for the time to look into your word and to consider your truths. 
May we be encouraged and challenged as we continue to worship you this morning. In Christ's name that we pray. Amen.